This is Queen Victoria. Welcome to Murder Lab, the podcast where I dissect serial killers and analyze what I find. Part two of Dennis Nilsson. If you didn't listen to the first one, you should, because you're. It's just better if you get the full experience. We're not. You know, don't just jump into this. Listen to the first one. The first one. You know, I went over the book Killing for Company by Brian Masters and also the show on the Sundance channel Dez with David Tennant as Dez. Just so you know, I didn't really say how I watch it or how you can watch it. We have um, AMC through Prime and through that you have access to like IFC, which has Sundance and then you get Shudder and a whole bunch of other stuff. I just went into my Prime AMC function and watch it just so's you knows. All right, so we did Sundance and we talked about, I'm always talking about agendas and what the motives are and, and if you can tell that a piece, whether that's a book or a movie or what have you, if it has an agenda. In Killing for Company, the agenda there is, I believe... He was really trying, Brian Masters was really trying to objectively look at the things that Dennis Nilsson was saying and trying to see whether um, he was sane or not. And maybe, and try to figure out the psychology of it. In Des, I pointed out that they very poignantly have Brian Masters' character saying in that show, he's definitely sane. So I feel like the, the way that they were driving that or presenting that, I feel like they were presenting it in a way that shows that they believe that he was sane. I could be wrong. I could be reading, I guess, reading into it. But I don't know. I feel like textual, like textual verification, it shows there's, there's context in there that shows that maybe they were they were pushing that way. I think they probably did a, a decent job at seeming, you know, being pretty showing Nilsson's side, the way that Nilsson was presenting things compared to the way that everyone around was perceiving it. So let's jump into Cold Light of Day. Cold Light of Day is from 1989. Bob Flagg is Dennis Nilsson. I'm not familiar with that actor. I don't think I was familiar with any of the actors in this movie. I found it just scrolling through Prime, I believe, and happened upon it. It's one of those things where I would not have recognized by cold light of day. I'm not familiar with him saying anything. Maybe he did have a phrase that he said cold light of day. I'm not sure. Um, usually I'm pretty good at catching when people say things. But so the cold light of day didn't catch my attention. What caught my attention is the description is that it said based on Dennis Nilsson. So I was like, hmm. And it just so happened to be around the time that I was deciding to do this. So I was like, OK, let's uh, check it out. Let me just tell you how they handle things. It, as always, like I said, that it tends to start with the drains at the flat that are clogged and the police coming to pick up Nelson and question him. Right off the bat, though, is when the cops, they, they show the cops coming to this flat, you know, these apartments, and they address a man named Jordan March. So they do not call him Dennis Nilsson. In that description, I'm guessing it's just, I don't know how they come up with those descriptions on Prime or on any of those streaming services, but they do say based on Dennis Nilsson. And it, it obviously is as you get into it. But apparently they do say here at the beginning, based on actual events, but not an account, name changed to protect innocent parties. There's a couple interesting things happening there. You wouldn't think so, but there are, I promise. <laughs> it's... The what I found really interesting is that they said it's based on actual events, but not an account. 
what that tells me is that where Des was based on Killing for Company, the book, which would be an account, it's someone's account of something, or it's not saying, well, we talked to this guy, and so it's based on this guy. It's based on what he said. It's not based on any one account, any one statement or thing. It's based on different events. That really gives them a, a lot of liberty, but, you know. And now, I do find it interesting. It says, name change protect innocent parties. And then right off the bat, he's called Jordan March. And uh, we know he wasn't innocent. I mean, he admitted he wasn't innocent. So that that struck me as kind of funny that that's the first name that you catch that isn't a real name. (laughs) And he wasn't innocent. But they do have other people in there that are called something different. Jordan March is taken to the station. When he's there, they show him in a room with a cop. And the cop starts telling him his rights. And I'm just, I don't want to call him Jordan March because it's confusing. I'm just going to call him Nilsson. Nilsson says, you don't need to continue with my rights. I understand them. And in real life, when he was being taken, apparently when the cops, I think it's when they got him in the car that they started to tell him. And he's like, no, I understand that. I understand my rights. And at that point, they didn't understand what that meant, that that um, meant he was a cop or anything or had been or that he had some kind of experience with it. Again, I like to notice little details that they put in there that are accurate because I think that helps. It helps with the overall picture. They kind of go back and forth between him being interrogated and like the things he's saying. And then they flash back to things that were happening, which you're assuming is like what he's telling the cop. It flashes back to a pub where a guy named Joe, they meet. He decides, Nilsson decides to let him stay at his place. Well, then the guy spends a night with him. Nilsson has him stay at his place and they show him at a diner and the guy's just jealous and catty and kind of shitty. Nilsson's real like subservient and pouty. Joe... After Nilsson heads off to work, Joe, they show, go, Joe, they show, they show Joe, mess with the guy in the loo. He hooks up with the guy in the bathroom. Right there, you show that that's pretty much just gives you the basis of that relationship, is that there's jealousy, the guy's not faithful, and it's it's a not a neat relationship. They have obvious issues. A side note, that is, it's David Galichan, G-A-L-L-I-C-H-A-N. So he had lived in real life. Nilsson had lived with David for two years. He's a, um, he called him Twinkle. That first like domestic relationship. And they, you know, they have a dog and cat together and a couple of budgies. So that is very obviously showing supposed to be David and Nilsson. And, and just like in three minutes, two minutes showing the mess of their relationship. Then they show he's leaving to go somewhere and he hears a man crying. So he goes in because he lived upstairs in the apartment, which is true in real life. He goes downstairs and there's an elderly male neighbor and he said he had actually messed himself. They show Nilsson cleaning him up and being very kind, you know, like the guy's embarrassed and but Nilsson's like, it's okay. It happens. It's not a big deal. Sets him sets him up and then goes to the woman next door and says, hey, I think we need to look into getting this guy help. Like, can you help me figure out how we can do this? She's like, yeah, I'll take care of it. You know, we'll get him set up. That shows Nilsson is known to be kind. And that's important when you're the kindly killer to establish the kindliness. He was known to have done some nice things here and there. And, and we established before, like, one of um, one of the guys that he winds up killing, he saw that he had, had some kind of fit and had called an ambulance for him. So they're establishing. I do not know. I had not seen anything that that actually happened, that he actually helped an elderly neighbor possible that it's in something that I haven't seen yet but I think it was probably manufactured just to show that that he had kindness in him and that that was 
to establish that there. Also, his woman neighbor asked to watch, asked him to watch her cat while she went out of town. This is how, in this version of things, this is how he gets a cat, as he's watching the neighbor's cat. And as I said, in real life, he had a cat, which he obviously wasn't very close to the cat because he always just called him cat when he would talk about him. But he would talk about the dog bleep and he would talk at length and intensively. And the cat, he was just kind of like, yeah, I fed the cat. He was obviously a dog person. They flash back to the cop interrogating him. And it's just over the top, over the top anger and just abuse and yelling. The cop's yelling at him and then Nilsen's crying. And it's just... And there's not a good cop, so it's not like good cop, bad cop. It's all bad cop. He's just yelling and berating, and Nilsen is just crying and pitiful, basically. Then they go back to the past, and they show Joe asleep. And then Nilsen strangles him with a tie, puts him in the tub, and then is in the bed with him. There, that stops being David, because he never killed David. David left willingly. This now becomes someone else. I don't know which victim... But if it's, I mean, if it's supposed to be his first victim, first victim he did strangle with a tie while he was sleeping and wash him in the tub and put him in bed with him, I believe. Then it goes from David to the, again, not the one account, but it kind of switches into, well, now it represents just his victims in general or his first victim, even if it wasn't that specific guy. The point is it shows him strangling someone in their sleep, establishes the bathtub and the bed ritual that he becomes familiar with. Then they show this kid running up a hill and you hear this heartbeat. It's just constant heartbeat. Boom, 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 boom. This kid tells his mom he misses his grandpa. Boom, 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 boom. He's flying a kite with his grandpa. Boom, 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 boom. His mom takes him to a coffin where his grandpa's laying in and says that he's sleeping. Boom, 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 boom. Then they show the grandpa having a heart attack on the beach. Boom, 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 boom. It does encapsulate the romanticism that Nilsson gave during Killing for Company, which I talked about before, is how he had this very romanticized, which, I mean, it's not necessarily uncommon to have a romanticized vision of your childhood. But you can, they, they do a pretty a good job of showing, without being like all exposition-y, is showing he had a relationship as a kid with his grandpa, and without coming right out and saying, well, my mom never told me he was dead, she just they just show, a, ma- a woman says, sleeping in the coffin. The thing is... According to Killing for Company, and this, and I did, like I said, I looked at some other things. I looked at 10 other books, and I'm, I'm going to look at more. According to this, the grandpa died of a heart attack out at sea. So in this, they make it look like he dies of a heart attack right in front of him. In the, this movie, they're definitely going for the sympathy and the empathy angle. Because you have the cop yelling at him, you have the guy crying. And then you have him show him as a kid where he's playing with his grandpa and his grandpa dies unexpectedly right in front of him. So they're really driving that home. The next scene, they show a body that Joe like half sticking out of the floorboard. So he was obviously, Nilsson's leaning over him, like he's putting him into the floor. It's kind of like montage <laughs> So this movie is just lots of montages. You're gonna need a montage, montage. It shows him going to a sex worker a female sex worker, and he basically, they show her sitting down, and he's, the view is like him, you see him from behind, and I believe there's a mirror there, which they do, they are pretty good in this about showing the mirror, like having the mirror incorporated frequently, which was, we know was his, one of his big things. Well, he unzips his pants, and then she kind of like, makes a face and like, grabs a tissue, 
And then he hands her money and she's just like, okay. So I'm assuming that meant that he just came really quickly or I don't know if it's all or if it could mean that he wasn't able to get it up. Although I swear there was a tissue. So I really thought the tissue meant that he just came too fast. But either way, it seems like that was not supposed to represent a pleasant experience. So basically, he whatever was happening there, whether it was that he was too fast or couldn't do it, is it shows it was not a successful coupling with this woman. That becomes a pivotal part in his flashbacks in the movie later. I think that what they're doing there is they're, that's supposed to represent when he was in the military and he went to a sex worker. I mean, he was able to do it and he did it and he was like, it was fine. I was able to do, you know, it was okay, but it was just, meh. you know, it wasn't exciting. It wasn't anything like it's nothing to be I don't know why I would go out and do that very often at all like that was just kind of it was lackluster but the way they show it in the movie is it almost becomes like a one of his uh, trigger points or like a really soft spot for him again it's this is not taken from an account it's taken from actual events so I'm guessing this is where they're taking yeah he went to sex workers let's throw this in here and show that oh he was having a trouble with a woman and he wasn't able to do this this was yet another thing that drove him into this madness again we show the agenda and we see where they're now they're taking things and putting it in context that they want you to follow he often went to cafes uh <laughs> a guy sits with him and nelson's like son of, don't want someone to sit with me so he's just kind of like okay kind of rude not really paying attention to him but the guy's kind of pushy. He's like, hey, can I, you know, can I have a cigarette? Will you buy me a coffee? The guy ends up following him back to his house. And he's like, I don't want him here. Well, then again, you have that heartbeat at, through the scene. And he, he kills a guy. There's that other heartbeat where it's a constant motif in this. And again, it's to draw up the tension and show, you know, artsy shit. That is based on one of his victims... One of them, he did kill kill out of inconvenience because he followed him home and he didn't want him there. That is based on an actual thing. They flash back to him being questioned by the cop and yelling and ranting as usual. Then it flashes back to Nilsson strangling a guy in the chair. In a chair, it goes back to the cop and then it goes back to him drowning, Nilsson drowning the guy in the tub. So again, I told you, there's a lot of like flashing forward and backward and montage type things. They show him throwing up in the bathroom with the corpse there. They flash back. So then he has this um, series of flashbacks. It's the um, memory montage. It's the grandpa stuff. And now it shows the grandpa stuff. And it also shows the sex worker. And then, it, you know, I think it just keeps like showing things that he's done. Then. And then it incorporates him putting Joe on the floor and a montage of the memories that he's had of, of these pivotal moments that have driven him to do these things. I do believe that he did throw up. The first time that it was difficult, the first time that he had to um, dissect the corpse and things. But then he got used to it and was, as I said before, as he referred to it as, well, it's just cleaning up after the feast. So it's just, it's not pleasant, but you have to do it. So it cuts to, no pun intended, there is a body lying face down on bags and it's implying that he's taking out the organs. And then it shows a head in the pot, in the pot on the oven. Then it shows him gagging and he's throwing, he's trying to flush some things down the toilet while he's gagging. So all that pretty much tracks. We know that he did one of the things he did. And I didn't really get too much into it, but he did one of the ways, the way that he would do it is he would lay down plastic bags and lay the body on it. And then that's where he would dissect. He's not nice to the cat, which if you believe Nilsson, 
in Killing for Company, he was nice to animals. He liked animals. So I don't know why they would have him being not nice to the cat. I don't understand that if you're trying to have a sympathetic character. I don't know why you'd have him being mean to a cat. I guess maybe it's just showing that it was an, it was an inconvenience that he would be polite, but it doesn't mean he has to be nice to the cat. He was being polite for his neighbor, but the cat was getting in his way. Then they show him crying again. So much crying. He brought, brings Joe up from the floor, crying. He's crying. And then the cat goes in the floorboards. Now, at this point, I can kind of understand why he'd be upset with the cat. Because the cat went down the floorboards and wouldn't come up. That was irritating. And I think at this point in the movie, the cat's owner was actually back and waiting outside for him. So it was kind of important that he got the cat out. In real life, his cat did go under the floorboards, I think, for like 10 minutes. And he had trouble coaxing the cat out from there. So that is based on a real thing. I mean, if you watch It's Always Sunny, you know all you have to do is get a series of cats... And then they get uh, cohabit, they cohabitate, and they get dependent on each other, and then they'll come out together when they want to. But a bird on a string doesn't work. One of my favorite parts, this cop is just, ugh. (laughs) It's worth watching just for this cop and how pissed off he is. There's a scene where he's questioning Nelson, or more more actually yelling at Nelson. (laughs) He just yells, liar! And, like, literally does a thing where he clears everything off the table. And there's just a few things on the table, and he clears the table. Liar! It's a big dramatic moment. And, of course, Nilsson cries. The next scene is a mirror. And the, you can see the body propped up in a chair. And Nilsson's, like, leaning in front of him. And you can tell that he's... It's like you can just see a little bit of them. And you get the impression that he's masturbating in front of the body. At least that's what it seems to be to me. And I, I don't... I, I really wasn't sure if... If they were trying to imply anything else. But that's all that my mind wanted to think. I didn't really even want to think that. So it looks like they were showing him masturbating in front of the body. So they did show that, that he would do that. And he did. We know that he did do that. He picks up a guy. And then the next thing you know, they show him putting body parts on the floor. So they don't really do the thing where they like they show you the character. And then they show the meeting. And they, ha- and they hang out. And then he kills him. And then, you know. So again, montages. It's all like hit it and quit it. Pick up a guy, body parts on floor. Then he's at at a railing, like at a bridge. He's like strangling the railing with a scarf, which I'm assuming, I think it was a a white and blue scarf, which I think is like what I mentioned last time is one of the victims. He actually kept the scarf. So he's like strangling the railing and crying and he's like biting at the air. It's a very, it's supposed to be very dramatic, but it's just interesting. Crying, biting at the air, strangling this railing, and then the scarf falls into the water. Yeah, and they're trying to be very artistic and I don't know. So much crying. Okay, my favorite part is... Uh, okay, so this is obviously like a, an English movie. It's British. You have the cop, which has the English accent. And I can't really do English accents great. But he literally was like, did you did you fuck the bodies? And he's like, no. Did you fuck the bodies? No. Crying. And then the cop literally says I shit you not did it make you horny are you getting wet right now thinking about it did it make you horny and this this was way before Austin Powers but oh my god so did it make you horny was enough and then are you getting wet right now thinking about it and at first I was like you don't ask dudes that like what is and then I realized he knows that Nilsson is homosexual so he's implying that he's a woman. It's a shitty thing to say. But again, it's worth watching this movie just for this cop. 
And the moment when he says, did it make you horny? There's more crying. And at that point, I kind of wanted to cry because I was tired of all the crying. I get it. He feels bad. There's a guy in the street that looks sick named Steven. Obviously, he's a junkie. They show him... They show him go and get drugs and then go back to Nelson's apartment. And they show him shoot up in the bathroom and then he sits in the chair. Then Nelson strangles him and stuffs him in the wardrobe. It's interesting they call him Stephen because I think it was actually Graham Allen that was the drug addict that he picked up. And then there was another victim of his name, Stephen Sinclair. So again, it feels like they're not necessarily trying to just say, hey, this is this victim and we're, rep-, you know, it's just this victim. It's this is representative of several victims. So they're kind of mixing it up. The toilet gets blocked, and the lady who he watched her cat for her calls, and I believe that she said it was 23 Langley instead of Cranley. They show taking stuff out of the sewer. Nilsson goes and tries to steal stuff so that way they don't know. And then again, we have a montage. (laughs) Even Nilsson gets a montage. Cops come, and then it's like you're starting the movie again. So they're basically back at the beginning of the movie... So you've seen, like, the full circle of why they're there and all that. And I thought, well, maybe that's just how it ends. But they actually go and then show the stuff being pulled out of the sewer. And and then he makes a statement when the cop's kind of like, why? Like, what the fuck? Nelson says something like, you can only kill yourself once, but you can kill others again and again. Which is something he said. And it's the idea of he really wanted to kill himself... But, again, but he can only kill himself once. So if he kills someone else, he can kill. It's like he's killing himself over and over and over. That was Cold Light of Day. It was interesting. I think it was, I mean, I'm I'm glad that I watched it. I think that it was interesting the things that they tried to do. They did try to make it, like, artistic. I think they took it very seriously that he felt conflicted. That he felt like it was a compulsion and that he didn't like doing it. (laughs) I'm going to look and see. I don't. I thought that I heard that the autobiography wasn't published, but I really would love to get my hands on the autobiography, which we'll get into that here in a minute. I, you don't know about the autobiography yet because I haven't told you, unless you've paid attention to other things. I don't know. I felt like he didn't talk about how he cried a lot, and I don't really feel like he came across as being more neutral. And th- yeah, there are moments where he said, well, at this moment I cried, or at this moment, and but I only remember it like once. And he, it seemed like most of the time it's just him like, well, then I did this and then I did this thing and it was terrible. And I know that it sounds terrible, but it made, it makes sense that I did this this way because of this. So everything's very matter of fact. There's always the statement of people like the cops were saying, like he doesn't, there's not real remorse. Like he may say that I know it's terrible. I did this, but there's, it's not like a heart wrenching type of thing. They, the people who made this movie obviously want or believe that he felt bad about what he was doing and that he had some kind of compulsion or that it was shit from his past that boiled up and led to this. From that piece, you can tell they wanted you to empathize with him, especially with the really mean cop, which I don't know if the cop was supposed to be. Part of me thinks that like it's this is how people tend to feel is what the fuck is wrong with you? Why did you do this? So part of me wants to say that he was like the audience's surrogate. But then again, he's just berating him and making him cry. So I think that's actually supposed to show the cops were kind of dicks and that people were mean to him and that he was sensitive and that they didn't need to be so mean to him. You know, so I think it was it seems like everything was built to make him look like he was a victim, basically. 
which um, that tracks with how Nilsson pretty much thinks of himself. Cold Light of Day, go ahead and check it out, if, if only for the, did it make you horny? Are you getting wet right now? Igor has a what the fuck seg- segment, so I'm going to do what the ass, because I like Zeke from Bob's Burgers. I'm going to get you, girl. As I was doing the book research, in the Big Book of Serial Killers by Jack Rosewood, he says that he, that Nelson messed around with his brother and sister. In Killing for Company, there is a moment when he says, it's really confusing the way that he says it, because the way that it's worded, it sounds like his brother's sleeping next to him, and he thinks his brother's asleep, so it sounds like he's touching himself while his brother's next to him and, like, imagining his brother as a corpse. But then he realizes his brother's awake and he stops. But then it, it also kind of seems maybe he was actually touching his brother. But then when his brother, actually, I think he got hard. I think he noticed his brother got hard. I don't know. And then he stopped. And then they never spoke of it, according to that account. I hadn't seen that he tried to do anything with his sister or that he did anything else with his brother. I'm iffy on that because every once in a while, Jack, you throw some things in there and I'm not always sure where you got them. Now, if you got them from a legit source, I apologize, but I have not come across another source that says that. If I do, I am happy to retract my statement and say, hey, I found a place where he says this. You also got a lot of typos in your books, Jack. I think you need to check that out. He also says that they w- that he was known for homosexual rape. And again, it is very serious to say rape. We don't need extra things that aren't there. None of the people that survived his attacks said that he tried to rape them. In no case did anybody say that he raped them. And he never said he raped. I just, I don't like a misrepresentation like that. Because, again, if you just start slapping labels on things because it's fun or because it's sexy or it's sensational and it sells, then the word stops losing meaning. He did not rape, just like the BTK did not rape. Let's just not say that anymore. Let's be careful. And, again, if for some reason I come across something that says that he raped, I will tell you and I will apologize. But thus far in all of my research, I have not come across that. There were a couple of books, and one was a Harold Schechter book, and the other is Serial Killers by Brian Ines, Inez, I-N-N-E-S. And they both mention that Nelson hanged a cat once to see what would happen. Blew my mind, because in Killing for Company, it builds this whole thing up. Oh, he, he took care of pigeons. He took care of things. He loved things. He loved animals. He would never hurt them. So where the fuck is this hanging a cat come at? I'm going to put a pin in that. Because I have a theory about where that might have come from. There's that detail that snuck in there. And since and it's a thing where two different sources say it, which doesn't necessarily mean anything. It could also be they got it from the same source. And that source may not be reliable. Or maybe it's a reliable source that I haven't come across yet. But it's, again, it's interesting. This is why you have to dig. And you have to look. If you really want to know some stuff, it's a good idea just to look at different places. And don't just get dug in on what you think that you know. All right, sorry, that lecture will come later. Now, I do want to read a section of an article. So I've got this book, The Chronicle of Crime, The Infamous Felons of Modern History and Their Hideous Crimes by Martin Fido. It's a collection of articles that are from that time period that things were happening. The book is just a collection of articles from different years that show different, like, um, true crime things that happened. So you can kind of get an idea of what it was like during the time in the media while this was happening. This is from 1983. Blocked drains at London flat giveaway killer. 
The drain clearer call to 23 Cranley Gardens, Muswell Hill, London, this February didn't care for the job. The outside underground pipe was clogged with meat, and somehow it seemed almost human. Still, knocking off time was approaching, and he went home shelving his worries for the night. Next day, almost all the meat was gone. There's an explanation point. But a little bit remaining seemed to be a definite finger. Police learned from other tenants that the top floor flat occupant, 37-year-old job center clerk Dennis Nilsson, had been up and down all night flushing loos and prodding around in the drain. When Nilsson got home from work, he didn't beat about the bush. He showed detectives human remains bagged in polythene in his flat. He showed them the big saucepan in which he cooked himself curries, when it wasn't used for boiling down his victims' heads! Exclamation point. He confessed to 15 murders in Muswell Hill and at his previous flat in Williston. Nilsson, a gay, drew his victims from the gray netherworld of homosexual runaways and drifters. He picked them up in pubs, invited them home for more drinks, and strangled them with ties, often preserving the bodies for a few days and even sketching them. I think we all know what the most offensive part of that was. <laughs> I mean, it was all, like, kind of outlandish, but... She, I mean, for the love of... Nilsson, a gay. So this is what we're talking about here. Is that... That is so packed and loaded. And this is why people were afraid to report shit. Is because you would be called, in the press, a gay, and referred to your lifestyle as the gray netherworld. So you can see right there, it is rife with just all this contorted meaning. And it's really fucking frustrating. I don't know that they actually found a definite finger, just so you know. I do enjoy the use of exclamation points, which if you're a Seinfeld fan, you understand why that's amusing. So that was interesting. As a palate cleanser, I'm drinking Yangling Hershey's Chocolate Porter. I was hoping there was more things that I could read in that voice, but there's really nothing else on the bottle that's exciting to read in that voice. It's a porter with natural flavors from Pottsville, Pennsylvania. Yeah, uh, and it does say on there twice, 21 up to enjoy. So you guys remember that. It's actually pretty good. I'm not always a big fan of chocolate beer. Sometimes I like it, you know. I, I do enjoy a good stout or a good porter. And if you throw some chocolate in there, I'm not going to say no. I'll try it. And sometimes it's more chocolatey and I'm not always in love. But this one's pretty good, especially because Yingling is a... It's higher in the scale than, say, your average Bud or Miller or what have you. But it's a little bit lower on the scale than some of the others. But I saw it and I was like, you know what, let's try it. And it's pretty decent. It's not too heavy. It's not too thick. It's all right. It's, it's a nice sipping beer while you're podcasting and talking about the gross netherworld of, sorry, the gray netherworld of serial killers. The last thing I'm going to talk about before I do my summation and my tantrum is Igor sent me some information on some Nilsson documentaries and such. And one was about Dez, which I already knew about. And then they, it mentions Memories of a Murderer, the Nilsson Tapes, which is on Netflix. I hadn't realized that was out. So I was like, well, it's perfect timing. I'll go ahead and watch that. May as well tack it on there. I'm doing everything else. This is an actual documentary. So the other things that I watched, it was a limited series, but it was obviously a drama. It was a dramatic series. And then Cold Light of Day was obviously just a fictionalized movie based on based on events, but not an account. This is a... This is a, definitely a documentary where they actually interview people that were involved in, in everything. And uh, I think it's like an hour and 25 minutes or something. As you can tell from the Nilsson tapes, 
they have recordings that he made where he's talking about everything, really. <laughs> Interesting to hear him talk about things from his perspective and just to hear his voice and hear the way that he says things. And I think that's, a, that's an important part is to hear the way that he says things and just to hear him say things. The beginning is he's talking and he says, oh, you can hear behind me my budgies Hamish and Tweedles. And that's how I discovered he had one name, a bird named Tweedles. I knew about Hamish. He does have a Scottish accent. It's not quite as thick as David Tennant's was, but, you know, hey. Which, and it was kind of nice because I could actually, I mean, I, I understood him just fine. Unfortunately, in some cases. It begins in London, 1983. They interview the detective inspector on the case. What was fascinating about this is that they have, they have the tape playing of Nilsson talking. Right. And then they have show the detective talking. Well, then as the detective saying something, they'll like have Nilsson finish the sentence or they'll have them say the thing at the same time. So that was kind of a, a, a different way of doing things. And I don't I can't remember if I've seen that done before. But that was that was an interesting way to handle that. They interview journalists and a BBC correspondent. So you have people who were covering the case when they first found about, out about it. And you hear their perspectives and they talk about how it exploded Karen Hunt, who was a constable at the time, she's interviewed and she talks about how, what it was like to have to go when he tells, when he talks about Melrose Avenue and how he had burned the bodies and spread them around. She was one of the cops that had to dig in the ground and, and she was like, it just, it was never ending. And it wasn't like you'd go through a few period of time where you wouldn't find anything. She was like, we were constantly finding pieces of bone. And she's like, it was exhausting. They, they do say that they got prints from a hand that was in the chest. So he had talked about how he had cut up bodies when he didn't have enough space in the Cranley Avenue flat, that he had cut up bodies and put them in this tea chest. So they found a hand. They were able to get prints from it, and that was Stephen Sinclair, but he was never reported missing. He had a record, and that's how he, they found him in the data, database, but no one ever reported missing, and that was the problem, is he was a drifter. He was only 20 years old. But that was the thing, is that all, a lot of these victims, they hadn't been reported missing, and it was difficult to track them down. They had gone on, he just goes on about different stuff, and they, they include, he talks about a curry that he got for lunch. He is just pausing to talk about, oh, I put this spices in it, and oh, this is pretty good. Like, they don't really do curry very well while I got it, but oh, when I add this, I think it was like West Indian spice, I don't know. This is pretty good. So he literally, like, recorded everything. This is what he was like, is he would just go on and on. And I guess he did live alone when we talked about how he was lonely and stuff. So I guess it makes sense that if he, he would record stuff and talk about. I mean, my mom likes to tell me that she made an egg for breakfast. So people like to talk about what they eat. I mean, hell, we've all complained about people take pictures of their food on Facebook. So, you know, even serial killers like to talk about their lunch. Thankfully, he didn't eat people or it would be pretty awkward. One of the journalists is talking that when they when they first heard about him, no one knew what he looked like because they're just given a name and who the fuck knows who that is. So they're all waiting outside because they know the cops are going to pick him up or he's going to be transferred or something. So they're, they're going get, to get to see him. So they think like, OK, so this dude, for him to be able to strangle these other guys this way, he's got to be like a big guy. <laughs> the, I think it was a BBC correspondent said... That he thought he'd look like a boxer. And he's like, oh, he's going to be this imposing, 
scary looking guy and or we won't even be able to see his face because he's going to cover his head which as you know a lot of times when people are being arrested they cover their face or whatever so when Nelson is taken out and people see this skinny he's pretty skinny this average skinny looking dude they're like oh it's not at all what they expected so they're really surprised and he doesn't have his head covered so they're like he does not look Again, it's like that lack of remorse. Like, he doesn't give a shit. Like, he's just walking out. And so, again, it's intriguing to see what people at that time period who were covering it, their thoughts and and how things were around the media at that time. A reporter had found out about, had figured out who Nilsson's mom was. So he goes to Nilsson's mom's house and wants to speak with her. And he, and he actually, I read one account where the mom basically was, like, bombarded with questions and was flustered and upset. This, the way he presents it, it was actually a conversation and that he was, it seems that he was civil and polite and, and that what's funny is he, they would have her say something and then they would have Nilsson's statement about it from his tapes and interviews and stuff. Is she would say, oh, he always seemed to be a, a lovely boy. He'd, no, I didn't notice any problems with him. And he's like, that's shite. Okay. He doesn't actually say that, but he does say lies. It's all lies. I didn't notice anything was wrong. And he's like, what the fuck? Like I always was on my own. And so it's just interesting to see that juxtaposition of her saying something and him being like bullshit. After that, he goes into how when he was eight or nine, he got a crush on a schoolmate and how he felt further isolated because he understood that wasn't a thing that was okay. The cop or someone asked him, are you a homosexual? And the quote was, of course, I'm homosexual, but I keep myself to myself. And that that does track with the way that he seemed to act in general throughout his life is that he was very kept it. He kept it very close to himself. And even when he was going out to bars and picking up guys, he would never really like flaunt it or at work, as I said before, it's like he did bring Twinkle to a work party, but he didn't make a big deal about it. And when people were like, so what's up with that? And he's like, yeah, that's a thing. And then move forward. He admits he's homosexual and that he's but that he wants to keep it. It's his business, which is totally true. It is just his business. When he admits that he's homosexual and it leaks out to the media, then, of course, we've got like a whole other thing. It's bad enough that he killed people. But oh, my God, he's a gay. And that's what everybody focused on. So then that's when you they really started. Oh, and, you know, I bet he had sex with bodies and it was this and. Oh, and we know that he was depraved because he was gay, so of course he would kill. Then the news focuses on that. And that's frustrating because it's not a big fucking deal. He, he's homosexual. Like, fuck, fucking get over it. Why, why is that a big deal? <laughs> it just, it makes me, that's another thing that really upsets me. Is that when you take something, it's just a, when you take who someone sleeps with and makes it, that's all about, that's who they are now. So I like to sleep with men. And so now that's all I am. And oh, so he likes to sleep with men. That's all he is. And then you make it one dimensional. And and especially like if you're a pedophile. OK, pedophile, I get if that that's a big deal. So that's but that's extreme deviant icky. <laughs> but being homosexual or bisexual or transsexual or what have you to make it all about that, I get it if that is a core connection. And in this case, you know, he picked up men and killed them, but it was really just, it would have, it's just the same as if he would have picked up women. You know, I, I, it doesn't, the only way that that really matters is that it underlines the, 
the social problem where homosexuals were being persecuted and subjugated and they were basically just treated as secondhand people and they weren't allowed to express themselves without repercussions. And that is what should have been brought to the forefront. And that's what they're that's another one thing they were really good about doing in Des and in this is they did show this should if if anything is to be gained from this, it should show how terrible the system was where people could just disappear and no one pays attention. And you go to the cops and the cops write it off because he doesn't like your sexuality. They don't trust you because of it. So that's the reason they should focus on him being homosexual is because it it shed light on the problems that homosexuals were facing in that time. So that's why. But it went the opposite way. And this is why. And I don't know if I really highlighted this. I don't know that I mentioned this. And it's, I'm glad that I, I'm mentioning it now that I thought of it now. Because this is part of the reason Brian Masters decided to get involved is because he's homosexual. And at that point, he was like, oh, my God, what the fuck are they going to do with this? They're going to take this. They're going to explode it. They're going to make it about all these kinds of depraved things. And they're going to make they're just going to run homosexuality through the dirt. If I can have anything to do with this where I can add some kind of reality in there and I can show this isn't just because he's homosexual. He didn't just kill people because. So that's a big reason why he decided to write that book. And that's a under that's a big problem that they had with the media at the time is they focused on that and they focus on that for the wrong fucking reasons and again that's why people wouldn't come forward okay we'll, we'll get that more of that in a minute they then they found out he was an ex-cop shit really hits a fan okay so first you have a guy was killing people and keeping him in the house or them burning their bodies so that's a big fucking thing then you've got he's homosexual then you've got he was a cop and so now he's just like offended every fucking group in the world master's just pissed because they're exploiting his homosexuality. The cops are pissed because fuck he was one of them. So he's making, you know, so what the fuck is that? And and the media though. Okay, so you've got so you've got all these people pissed, but the media's fucking loving it. Because they can have a fucking field day and they can exploit this to the heart their heart's content and they have all kinds of oh he was a cop, he was a cop. And the thing is, he was a cop for a year. So I would think that doesn't really matter as much, that it wouldn't really count. But you know, if you're a cop, you're a cop. You did it for a year, you still wore the badge, you still knew it. I see why it's still a big problem and why it's so insulting. They interview a guy who was a cop with him, and the guy says that Nelson was a loner. He didn't really achieve anything. No one batted an eye when he left. Then they juxtapose that with uh, Nelson had said that they, they begged him to stay, which in the book he makes it sound like, he does make it sound like they were puzzled that he was leaving, but they were just like, okay, well, you know, you do you. But later in the special it, in the documentary, it makes it sound like they were like had asked him to stay. So again, we see that inflated sense of self. This same cop that used to work with him, he got when Nilsson was off the force, he got a call for a domestic disturbance. When he goes to the place, he says the walls were painted black. A juvenile had broken a window. The victim said that he was naked, that he woke up naked. A man was co coming towards him. So he jumps out of the window. And the guy was Dennis Nilsson that was supposed to be the attacker. So Dennis is at the station. He just says, if you don't have a charge for me, you have to let me go. Because he was a cop and he knew his rights. So the victim wouldn't press charges. They had to let him go. And the cop was upset because he's like, this obviously happened, but 
he's going to get away with it. I don't really know about the walls being painted black. I'm not sure about that one. It's, uh, it's still interesting to hear what someone who worked with him and then was later called to one of his attacks has to say about it. At this point, they talk about John the Guardsman, which was John Howlett. That's what he called John Howlett. He was a rent boy. And they found that there were there was a list of hundreds of rent boys. Basically, it looks like rent boy is a male who will have sex with other males for rent money. So they talk about that. They found out John Howlett was one. And that's how they were able to track him down. They interview a man named Martin. This was really interesting that this is a man who had been who had survived a Nilsson encounter. The way that the cops got to him is they found his insurance card at Nilsson's place. And it had his full name on there. So they, they looked him up, talked to him. And, and this is like the first time the guy has spo- spoken about it. He says it was five years before Nilsson was arrested. He went to Nilsson's place at Melrose. The guy seemed caring. Martin had run away at 14 to London. This is they get he does get a little more into the rent boy. He says that each lamppost when he first showed up, he noticed there were guys by lampposts. And it turns out that each rent boy had their own lamppost that they posted up by. And not all of the rent boys were gay. It was just they needed money and they would be willing to do whatever to do it. He went to bed. Then he woke up because and there was smoke in the place and he could hardly breathe. Nilsson is trying to he's like has water around and he's trying to get the smoke out of the room. He accuses Martin of knocking the fire off the wall. So I don't know if it's like a heater, I'm assuming, and that it caught fire and then Martin left. But then he got to thinking, I couldn't have gotten that. I couldn't have knocked it off the wall. And the guy was probably trying to kill me. It obviously frightened him, but he was scared because everyone was fucking homophobic. And so he stayed quiet and was afraid to say anything all these years. So this was the first time that he actually talks about it and felt comfortable enough to talk about it. It was really touching to see him the evolution of him going from being just ashamed and afraid to when he talks about how he actually went to the trial and that he felt like that released me and I don't have to be a prisoner of this that I have control of this and I don't have to be afraid of this and be this make this a burden that was a another really nice compelling thing about this documentary is you got to see moments like that they show a man named Shane and Shane's mom Leslie she knew about what was going on, but she had heard that Nilsson would kill homosexuals. So she's like, well, I'm safe because I'm married to this man, so he's, and he's not a homosexual. He was known to have a drug problem, and, you know, they had a kind of a tumultuous relationship. But, she, you know, she figured, well, he's safe from that guy at least. Well, then the cops show up and ask if she knew this man, and it was Graham Allen. She goes into how the last thing she said to him was, if you go out for a fix, don't come back. And God damn it, he didn't come back. So it's that last words you wish you didn't say, but how the fuck are you going to know? She had that burden. Then it's heartbreaking because she's talking about how a reporter called her, tells her all these details about how he was strangled from behind, and that where he saw him was Graham was getting a taxi. Nelson was like, oh, here, I'll, I'll, you know, you can come with me. I'll take care of you. They show a representation of her in the limited series Des. Here's where... (laughs) 
There's this journalist, and I'm going to have to look up names and stuff because I'm very curious about this. Is there's a journalist that said that realized that heard that he was writing an autobiography. So he's like, well, I would just like to do an article about this. So he writes to Nelson and says, hey, I hear you're doing an autobiography. Can you share some information with me? Because I'd like to do a story on it. Well, as we all know how prolific Nelson was with his recordings and his journals and everything, he starts sending letters and tapes and all kinds of shit to this guy. He talks about his grandpa, of course, and that they told him that his grandpa went to a better place. He starts to play a keyboard in jail and smoke pot. So there's talk of how he liked to smoke pot and play keyboard. And then he talks about his grandpa being inappropriate with him and being a pedophile. I can't describe to you the dismay and frankly, like horror and surprise that those words were said. I believe they have him saying it. Like, they play the recording of him saying those words. That's a big fucking deal. I will I will get more into why that was such a shock to me and why... Yeah. So keep that in mind. He mentions that his grandpa's a pedophile. And that was not mentioned in the book. That's a big fucking deal. Put a pin on that one, but just keep that in mind. So I was really glad I watched it because it brought that to the forefront. There was that detail. By the trial, they had ID'd seven people. Some were homosexual, some were not. Leslie did also go to the trial because she wanted to feel like she was representing Graham, even though they couldn't officially say that Graham, like, pin him, charge him for him. They show Des, Des, Nilsson's counsel, Ivan Lawrence, where they're talking about diminished responsibility. And Leslie says... So they're talking about the diminished capacity. And her response is, I don't want him to be mad. I want him to pay. Make him pay. So that encapsulates a whole other, a whole thing about the question of, even if someone is insane, we want them punished because they did something terrible. So then you have the, well, what is the, what is the, what's the goal here? Is the goal to punish is the goal to re- rehabilitate? Is the goal to, you know... So that says a lot right there. And again, I will get into that here in a minute. In 1982, they have talk about Carl Stodder. Uh, the journalist had talked, spoken to Carl. And Carl talks about the zipper, how it was cold, the bath. He was pushed down three times, realized it was over, and then woke up. He went to cops and they didn't believe him. They thought he made it up. And he thought, well, maybe the cops are right. But then when the cops came back, other cops came back to question him later, he realized, fuck, it was, it really happened. He felt that he was sane and it was premeditated. They realized that five people had gone to the cops at that point and were ignored. So five different people came to the cops about Nelson, ignored. Karen, the constable, said she had seen hundreds of witnesses torn to shreds. So of course people don't want to testify. And again, that's regarding the homosexuality that, you know, if you have, if you're not what society would consider ideal or status quo, then they're going to tear you apart. I mean, even the status quo people can get torn to pieces in this kind of thing. So she's like, of course they don't want to come forward. Is because who wants to be treated like shit and not believed? What's the, what's the point? Carl does. They mentioned that Carl has a quiet voice, which as was mentioned in Killing for Company and on the Des show they did have to ask him to speak up so that was 
another note that 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 all flows together. The journalist said that um, everyone claims he's bad and not mad. He paints a romantic picture, but he killed out of pure evil, needed to see himself in a certain way. So the journalist is settled on he's he's just bad and and that he's just trying to that Nilsson's just trying to fool himself into making it seem like he there's some reason to empathize with him. It says we need to take credit not for making him but making it so easy for him to do it. So that's I feel like that's that's what this their point was for so the agenda for this one for the documentary is was really showing more of the social aspect and not necessarily whether he's good or bad it's basically just presenting okay so this is what he said this is what people who were handling the case went through and this is what some was you know people who survived said this is and then the social commentary is that 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 should be the final that that's the final thing is maybe the focus shouldn't be on trying to figure out if he's insane or that we should be upset with ourselves that we made him that way somehow it's really that we made it easy for him to get away with it we may not be able to predict that he was going to do it or even if we don't understand why he did it because the first goal is can we understand why he did it so maybe we can see signs in the future to stop someone else from doing it that's fucking difficult as we've established and it's i'm not saying it's possible but it is difficult. But failing that, what can you control? Well, you can control the fact that cops kept ignoring the victims. And he killed for years because that was ignored. And so you can look at the social implications and something can be done about that. And it may not be an easy answer. It may not be overnight. But that's what you should focus on. That's what we need to focus on at this point. I'm very glad that I made this journey this way. I like to come upon things my own way. So I don't always want to follow the same path or do the same things or do things in the same order as other people or what what have you, because I think it's important for me to have the journey and the adventure and for me to have my own viewpoint on it. So I'm not, don't don't run the risk of, okay, well, I listened to this. So this is, this is what I'm going on or whatever. This was just a fucking roller coaster ride for me. By the end of the documentary, I just felt like crying. And I just felt terrible and confused and hurt and manipulated. I don't, it's, it's hard to express exactly how deep this went for me. So, of course, being human, the first thing that I read... It is hard not to take that as, okay, that, and I said that is my basis. The first thing I read gives me a basis. But I try really hard to stay neutral and not to get emotionally involved in it and just see it for what it is and try to ascertain from that. It was hard not to get emotional. And when I was, when I was reading Killing for Company, I did get kind of caught up in, well, Nelson seems like he's trying to figure things out. And he puts things in such a way that you do get kind of caught up in the way of his thinking and him trying to figure things out. So you're like, okay, we're all trying to figure this. So it feels like we're all trying to figure this out together, including Nilsson. So you kind of feel like, not that you empathize with him necessarily, but that you're trying to see it from his point of view and that he's also trying. So you're assuming when he's trying, he's 
being honest. And even if he's not being honest, you're at least pulled back enough that you can still try to be a little impartial to it. But it got to me more than I realized the the idea of, well, maybe this is more confusing than than just it's not as cut and dried as, OK, well, you're saying now and you're not saying now or you're just insane. Maybe because mental health is such a fucking complex thing. And that's what really I, that's what really got to me is reading Killing for Companies, because I get how complex mental health is and how a sane person can have all these dueling mentalities and still be sane. But then at what point? So I understand the gradations, the, the grays and things in it. Having gone from that and then going to Des, where then you do start to see things from like other people's perspective and that I was a little easier to be more analytical because I was comparing it to killing for company. So that also gave me another way to be a little emotionally pulled back is now I'm comparing and now I can see, well, does this match with this? And especially when I learned, oh, Brian Masters' character is in it. How are they doing? But like I said, when I was talking about it last time is when they mentioned that they were closing the case and that other victims wouldn't be get their justice. I wanted to cry. I think there is something about hearing something from the victim side mixed in with hearing things from the killer side that definitely does help you keep that balance because it is hard not to get emotional about this kind of thing then when I got to cold light of day that was I don't know that one it was kind of easy because it was just I don't just him crying all the time and that cop it was hard for me to take it very seriously so that I was just kind of like you know and I could just very clearly see they're trying to make you feel sorry for him and I don't know. I think, again, I was being a little more analytical about it. So if I would have just watched it without trying to see, like, okay, what details are they using that are they taking liberties with? I guess I could have possibly gotten caught up in a little more emotionally. I don't know, though, because the other things I was doing that and I got caught up emotionally and in that one, I just didn't. But <laughs> that it was, I didn't really, I still didn't really feel for him too much because he just seemed so fucking pathetic in that that I it was hard for me to be like you know so that was kind of just interesting to see okay well they're obviously playing the the sympathy card when it got to the documentary like I said it was well I had in the back of my mind because after I had um I had looked at some of the my sources and I'd seen that he hanged a cat comment and I was really like I don't know that's two people said it it's like in the back of my mind, let's just keep this filed away because, you know, I'm not going to get again. It's not about dismissing things right out of hand. It's about, well, let's just keep that in there and know that that's somebody said it and we won't say whether it's right or not. It's just an interesting thing. And then maybe later we'll see something that so I was able to be like, OK, so what maybe that was a thing. Maybe it wasn't. Let's just move forward. Well, then in the documentary, when he says his grandpa was a pedophile, and I know this sounds dramatic, but it felt like a punch in the gut because it felt like he was <laughs> it felt like he was being open and honest and forthright <laughs> in killing for company. And the, the thing that you fall into is there's a part of you that understands he is probably lying about certain things. But what's difficult is when you have someone giving you details and terrible details, it's really weird to think that there would be details they would leave out. So if you will say, I tried to have sex with a dead body, but 
it was starting to get cold, so I wasn't aroused. So instead, I masturbated on his stomach. And then um, the way that I would dissect them is I would cut off their head and boil their head. And I would take out their organs. When you start talking about taking out people's organs, it is hard for me to... It's weird to think that that person who admits that and is not is unflinching about how you might perceive that, they'll share that, that they wouldn't say I hanged a cat or they wouldn't say my grandpa was a pedophile. I was of a couple different minds. Like the first thing was, I was just like, well, fuck, did he say that later? I literally heard him say it in the special, in the documentary. So he obviously said it, but it's like, why wouldn't that, why wouldn't he have told him that to Brian Masters? And why would, if he did tell it to Masters, why would Masters leave it out? Because especially the grandpa being a pedophile, that's a big fucking deal. And that really would drive home why he tied the the sexuality with the death and the confusion and love. That certainly would make sense. If it was in there, then I did not catch it. And they did not make it obvious. It seems to me in this book, he just goes on about, it really seems like a pure, innocent love that that's why it was it was so romanticized is because it was pure and innocent and there was nothing to taint it like that that really just got me thinking like the cat hanging and the grandpa thing why wouldn't he give it to masters then i got to thinking he makes a comment in and i don't know if this was actual quote from nelson but i wouldn't be surprised so at the end of des he says well everybody has their version of my story when do i get to tell mine so when this journalist asks, oh i heard you're writing an autobiography that is a chance to say some more stuff that maybe you saved. So maybe you did save some things for for later. Makes me think that he felt he didn't get enough attention. He didn't get enough of his say. So he wanted to add details. True or not. Maybe that's when he added, one time I, I was hanging a cat just to see what would happen. Because he needs more shit to say. And he needs more attention. And he needs to have more... Uh, you know, or you could argue that he, even though he's supposedly have been so self-reflective and really digging deep to figure out whether he's crazy or not and all that, maybe he buried that his grandpa was a pedophile. Maybe he, it was like he repressed it and he couldn't admit it because he wanted his grandpa, he wanted to have that as a perfect relationship. So one could argue it was a repressed memory that he didn't want to talk about and that he couldn't divulge until later. So maybe he didn't remember it or maybe he couldn't talk about it until later. I guess you could make that argument. But it's a good reminder that as honest as he seems to be or as someone seems to be, you have to be careful <laughs> not to fall into the trap that everything they say then is honest. And he's, it's really, it's just devastatingly obvious with this is, is the, the ride you go on where when I was trying to think about, okay, is he sane or not? Just thinking openly, my thought was, well, one question is how can a person exist with dueling mentality where on one side you think, okay, killing is wrong and a bad person does that, but then you go around killing people and you live with yourself thinking, well, I'm not going to do it again. And it's bad, and I'm bad, but I'm really good. So how can someone survive that way? How can they live with that dueling? And then I got to thinking, and I hate to keep bringing my mom up, <laughs> <laughs> but, 
But one thing I've learned over this whole COVID thing is my mom can just have the most conflicting thoughts and not flinch. So on one hand, she can say, I'm scared I'm going to get COVID. And then the next thing is when I ask, are you going to put on your mask? Oh, why would I put on my mask? How do you think you get COVID, mom? You know, or like she was going to quarantine. She was like so proud that she quarantined because she thought that she had it. But she kept going out to eat. And so then I asked a question, what do you think quarantine means? And this is a woman that was not afraid to ground. She understood what grounding was. Trust me, when we were kids, she knew what grounding meant. Grounding meant you don't go anywhere. So basically, I was like, Mom, it's basically like you're being grounded. You can't go anywhere. And and it's crazy because we've had discussions about quarantine. So she's sane and she has no signs of having Alzheimer's or anything. She just can live with those two different thoughts is where and and what it is is it's yes I understand conceptually this is a thing but I am uncomfortable and unwilling maybe unable to change my life for it so yes I'm scared of it but not enough to change my life if a sane person can think this maybe he was sane and then you know you have the well he knew it was bad because he hid it And I can kind of see the argument, okay, well, in that moment, I really, and and I do think it's possible, he did not know when he was going to do it. And that's why it was kind of random, is that I think that there was a moment when he was like, all of a sudden, he felt the compulsion to do it. But I don't know if that makes him insane. It obviously makes him, he has, there's something wrong with him. But is it that he's insane? The mental and emotional roller coaster ride I went on through this just reiterates to me how important it is to always keep looking, always keep researching, keep your mind open. And when you feel yourself settling into something, be careful because, and it's not, it may seem like, well, what's a big fucking deal? Like you're trying to figure out if a serial killer was sane or not. Like how does that do, you know, what is that in the grand scheme of things? But I, what really drove home for me doing this is that the exercise is important. And I believe that's where Brian Masters was coming from. And maybe, and he prompted that thought, is that it's the, the idea of we may not understand, but as long as we're trying, that's important. And that's how you learn. That's how you grow is because you're trying. And it's not always easy. It's hard. And, you know, it's, it's hard to know, well, do I believe this? Do I not believe this? But that's why you need to keep searching and and it's not just about one specific thing it's in life in general everything you face is try not to fall into the trap of well it's this way because it's this way and this source said this so that's how it is and that's why I think it's so important to look at different sources and to question the sources and in a day and age of people who fucking forward shit based on a headline it's not acceptable anymore. And I did my The Truth episode where I went on about how can you know it's the truth and, you know, and how hard it is. And, and, and I made the comment then like, well, if that's how you want to live, that's fine. But you know what? It shouldn't be. You shouldn't settle for that. And granted, there are people who maybe mentally it's I know this sounds condescending, but there are some people mentally it's just harder for them to be able to open up like that. But I still encourage people to try, even if it's hard Just try. And every little step, it gets easier along the way. And the thing is, it also makes life more fucking interesting. 
is to have these moments where you realize, okay, well, maybe I was wrong about this thing. Maybe it is this way. Or to have you to have that moment where you connect with someone because you realize, shit, they just brought up a good point I didn't think about. It's just a good idea to try to research out of your comfort zone and to try to look at things in different ways. And that's one thing. One thing I will never forget. My dad taught me is always look at it from other perspectives. Your perspective is going to be limited. Even as open-minded as you try to be, you need to look at other perspectives. So this is why it's it's just so pivotal that if you're interested in something, in anything, don't just look at one thing. Look at all the things. And honestly, look at the shit. Like, you hear me talk all the time, well, I looked at this and it was shit. And I threw the book because it ended up being shit. But I looked at it. And it's the argument of, if you don't know the other side, how can you refute the other side? So look at what some of the, what you consider the other side are saying. Because maybe they have some points there, here and there. And then you can also say, well, you mentioned this point, but it's interesting because it's actually, I noticed this thing. Maybe don't get in, engaged in a lot of conversation where you know that someone's not going to listen to you no matter what. But if you can find people <laughs> who will have an open discussion, or you can read articles. Just reading shit doesn't mean that you have to, your brain will become shit. Use it as an exercise and let it make you stronger and smarter and more challenged and more in-depth. And, and it's okay if you change. That's the great thing is it's okay to change. It's good if you change. And that's the great thing about a podcast is, you know, I say something in this episode and then I realize, you know what? I read something else. I, I talked to a few people. You know, shit. Now I think that maybe I understand this side of a little bit better. Read the books. Watch the different shows. Keep an open mind. And pay attention. I mean... It's fine if you want to watch something for enjoyment. I'm not saying that. You have to have things that you enjoy. But if, if it means something to you, pay attention. Ha- having said that, I don't know if he had diminished capacity. I don't know if he was insane. I don't know if there's some weird version that it's all of the above. Like maybe mental health can't just be he's sane or insane or he's sane sometimes. Maybe it's even more difficult than that. I think with Nilsson, at least he's not killing anymore at least they caught him and he can't kill anymore and I don't know that he needed mental help he did admit he would have kept doing it at the very least in this case we got him off the street and he was caught and he's not able to hurt anyone anymore it's very difficult as far as if he was sane or insane and I'm just gonna keep looking and keep trying to figure out and I you know we may never know but again it's the exercise of trying that matters. It's the watching things and reading things and all kinds of things and just trying to understand. That is the big lesson. And my driving point for the whole podcast is if I were doing this about anything, the goal would be let's do as much research as possible. Let's think about it. Let's look at it from different directions. And so if you even if you're not in, well, obviously, you're into serial killers because you're listening to this. But just just take that away from it is just always be digging, always be researching It'll make you a better person. All right. Well, I'm spent, and I think I've covered enough of this. And again, if I come up with any other information, I'll let you know. I'm going to see about that autobiography and see if I can find anything where it actually says that he did hang a cat. Keep you, I'll keep you updated. Coming up, we have uh, Igor will do another episode. I will be talking. We will be talking about Unsolved Mysteries. We've uh, I've been watching the old ones, and... And uh, I've actually started watching some of the new ones. And so her and I, I'm sure, will be mentioning that and all kinds of things. So stay tuned. And we love you. And thank you for entering the lab.
If you enjoy the experience and experiments of Murder Lab, go to Facebook, Instagram, and MurderLabMedia.com for updates. Share with your friends, those you created in a lab or not, as long as they can subscribe and listen, we'll take it. Murder Lab is available on Google Play and iTunes. The RSS feed is on MurderLabMedia.com for you to plug into your podcast app. We can always use more lab rats. <laughs> <laughs>